You can take all my possessions, all the things that men hold dear, all the precious gifts that this old world can hold. But this love I found at Calvary far exceeds my fondest dreams. It's a love that can't be bought by this world's gold. Then you ask me why I love him, why I chose to walk his way, why I find his service sweeter every day. It's the only life worth living, <clears throat> my world complete. Oh, that's what Jesus means to me. And then each night round sundown, my little boy climbs on my knee. <laughs> when the clouds of gloom and doubt would hover low, then he whispers, Dad, I love you. And my doubts just seem so small For he's made our home a heaven here below Then you ask me why I love him Why I chose to walk his way why I find his service sweeter every day. It's the only life worth living. He has made my world complete. Oh, that's what Jesus means to me. Beautiful as always. I am not sure. Is there? Uh, we were supposed to do children's church today. <laughs> Northea had to go, and I didn't get that information from her. So, oh, okay, Tina. Thank you. All right, boys and girls, second grade and below, children's church. Sorry for the mix-up there, Miss Thelma. We could all hum. Mm Bible to First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. I'd be remiss not to mention we had a wonderful week 
this week, vacation Bible school, uh, great time, good old kid, good kids, uh, good response, uh, great parents, great helpers, great teachers. Uh, I'd hope Miss Calhoun would be here today so we could thank her uh, for all the work she did in getting it together. But uh, I think she has started headed off to Kirbyville because she goes over there to her uh, sister's church and helps them with their vacation Bible school. I think Miss Calhoun is just addicted to vacation Bible school or children's ministry or one of one of each, perhaps. So, but I wanted to say thank you to you, church, for all that you do in regards to vacation Bible school. So many of you help in ways that are behind the scenes, and we thank you for that. You pray, we thank you for that, and then you support financially. We can't do a free vacation Bible school if the church does not give towards that ministry. So thank you very much for all the ways that you have supported uh, this wonderful evangelistic opportunity that we have with kids. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 19. Now one of my all-time favorite Bible stories is in actually the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 3. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in that story, uh, there, there's some of the leadership of the Babylonian capital, Babylonian territory, and the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has made this huge monument, this huge towering idol is what it is. And in that story, what's supposed to happen is all the people of Babylon are supposed to gather around, and when the instruments are played, everybody there in Babylon is supposed to bow down and worship this idol that King Nebuchadnezzar has made. It's like 90 feet tall. I can't remember the dimensions at this time. But uh, so when he does that, all the, all the musicians play their instruments, they're supposed to bow down and worship, and so they do it, except three people don't bow down and worship, and it's the three Hebrew guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, so obviously King Nebuchadnezzar sees them, they're kind of his leadership, part of his leadership council, he calls them up there and uh, tells them, hey, I'm going to give you another chance and you need to bow down, and, and uh, when they don't, what does he do? Throws them into the fiery furnace, and the fiery furnace is so hot that the men that throw the three guys into the furnace, they actually die from the heat. So obviously, these three guys are going to die when they get into that fiery furnace. You know the story. King Nebuchadnezzar looks in there, and what does he see? He's three, he sees the three Hebrew children walking around, and then he sees a fourth figure. And he says, in the scripture, literally, the fourth one looks like the son of a god. And many Bible teachers and many scholars have, have always thought that they presuppose that that fourth figure was, in fact, an incarnate, uh, a pre-incarnate uh, image of God. And perhaps it was Jesus before Jesus was actually born, because, you know, Jesus has always existed. And I believe that, too. I believe this was an incarnation of some sort of God kind of like uh, what happens so many times in the Old Testament. But even if it was only an angel that was in there, still this is a messenger from God in there hanging out with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Now, you may be asking, and you can read all about that story in Daniel chapter 3. You may be asking, why am I bringing up this Old Testament story when I have asked you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4? Because there is an underlying premise in that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I want us to see as we look at these eight verses in 1 Peter chapter 4 about suffering and about finding hope in suffering. And the premise is this, the opportunity for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in the presence of God 
would never have materialized if they had feared and run away from their fiery trial. And it's this premise I want us to consider as we go through our scripture this morning and consider this question, how can we have hope when we are suffering? Because remember, this is still the major theme of this book. Peter has written his letter to saints that have dispersed throughout the region and they are running for their lives because Rome has come down on them with a fiery trial. and They want all Christians to be put to death or put in prison or done away with Part of the problem is, is that they won't worship Caesar as their God. They want to continue only worshiping the God and the Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let's read our scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, He is blasphemed, but on your part, He is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pause a moment for prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak into us because of your holy word. Lord, that you would impact us because of the presence of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we could truly find hope in the midst of suffering and not think that hope can only be found when we have no suffering. How can this be? It seems so perplexing. Lord, teach us this morning through your scripture. And it's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. And, and so in this scripture, Peter posts some interesting thoughts for those who are living in the first century. And I find them very interesting living in the 21st century. I want to go over some of these statements real quick this morning with you. The first one is this. He says, don't find it strange to face fiery trials. Does anyone else find that strange, that Peter would say, don't find it strange when you face fiery trials? Maybe we would find it strange because of how the Christian life was sold to us. How we were told that if we would just ask Jesus into our hearts, everything would be made better. Life would be so much better. We'll have an easier life if Jesus is in our heart. Of course, nobody ever explains to us what it means to have Jesus in our hearts. That seems like a strange thought when you cannot completely grasp the abstract thought there. In reality, though, the moment you surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord and confess Him as Savior and Lord, you will not experience heaven on earth, but instead all of hell is unleashed against you. Because the moment you become a follower of Jesus Christ, the enemy hates you even more. Because you have decided 
that you cannot save yourself and only Jesus can save you. That's why we're not to be surprised that we should face fiery trials in this life. It's not that I want us to go around telling the world that following Jesus is the worst decision we've ever made, because it's not. It's the best decision that we've ever made. But I do want us to communicate the reality of why that decision is the best decision we've ever made. It's not that life is easier, but because I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I know that this life is not all there is for me. And that gives me hope. Life is better because I have a hope of the eternity that is promised to me after this life is over. I have a hope because no matter how I struggle or suffer in this life, I know I have a friend that sticks closer to me than a brother. That's why life with Christ is better. We need to, though, communicate the reality that we face fiery trials in this life, especially when Christ becomes our Lord and our Savior. Uh, the next interesting statement that Peter makes, he says, you can rejoice in sufferings. That's interesting. That's completely paradoxical to what the world would tell us. Instead, we should take those opportunities to find pity for ourselves, right? Or we would take the opportunity to say, well, how, uh, how, how on earth do I deserve such a thing? But what Peter says is that in the midst of those sufferings, we can rejoice. And that's in the Bible, that's not too unique. Because in fact, James, the brother of Jesus, says in his book something similar. He says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith produces. And he goes on and tells us what it produces. It's the same idea here to rejoice in sufferings. At the end of verse 13, my version reads that you may also be glad with exceeding joy. This word in verse 13, you may also be glad, is actually the same root word at the very beginning of this where he says to rejoice. So that word for rejoice and, and the wording for make you glad is the same Greek word root. Why am I telling you this? The Greek word root for those two words is the word charis. I don't know if that means anything to you, but to me it means a lot. Because charis is the root word we get grace from. What is Peter saying here? Is that when we experience suffering, we are able to rejoice because of a gladness for grace. You see, no matter what I suffer, I can find re rejoicing, joy, gladness in the grace I've received through Jesus Christ. The next strange thing he says is in verse 15. He says, let none of us suffer as a result. And then he lists some sinful behaviors. He lists four sinful behaviors. The reason this is interesting to me is because it seems to shift gears. All of this text seems to be talking about suffering for your faith. Remember, Peter is talking to Christians who are suffering because they've taken a stand for Jesus Christ. Why all of a sudden does he say don't suffer because of these sinful behaviors? Well, there's a couple of reasons I can think of. Remember, these are born-again believers. They were transformed by God's grace from being lost to being saved. These may be old lifestyles that they struggled with. You see, I don't know about you, but even though sin no longer reigns in me, sin remains in me. And I still struggle with sinful temptations of my old life. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, do you struggle with murdering? 
I have four kids. I struggle with that one all the time. Not really. I love my kids. But this idea for this word murder is not just about homicide. If you remember when Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount about murder, what did he tell us? He said, don't hate your brother. If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder as well. And the idea of this word, this Greek word for murder, actually has to do more with sanctity of life. When you think about sanctity of life issues, it's not just homicide. Now we're talking about abortion. We're talking about racial prejudice or any kind of other prejudice, slave trafficking, finding the value of human life. What does he mean by thief, uh, being a thief? Don't, don't suffer because you have stolen. You know, I don't struggle with, with wanting to go steal things from my neighbors uh, or, or, or anybody else for that matter. But to steal something is generally the, uh, what, what comes from other issues in our life. When I envy, when I covet, when I'm jealous, generally what that does is it causes me to go and want to steal. Maybe the people that Peter are talking to, though, really do struggle with a desire for kleptomania, to want to go and steal. This word evildoer, it's a, it's a Greek word. It's kind of a catch-all word. Basically, if Peter doesn't catch anything with the other three words, he's going to catch it with evildoer, the, the Greek word kakos. Uh, and then finally, busybody. That's what mine calls it. Some of yours may have the word meddler. It's a Greek word that actually doesn't exist anywhere else in the Greek. Not just in the New Testament, but in all of Greek culture. This word here in 1 Peter chapter 4.15 doesn't exist anywhere else in the history of Greek culture. So a lot of people believe that Peter made this word up. And the word is a combination word that means to oversee someone else's business. To be a busybody. To be in someone else's business. Listen, I think what Peter is doing is, is he's saying, listen, you're going to suffer because of your faith. You're going to suffer every time you say no to sin and struggle with fleshly temptations, you're going to suffer as a way for God to grow you in your faith, to put you through the fiery trial. You've got enough suffering. Don't bring any more suffering on your life because of sinful choices. That's just ludicrous. There's enough suffering in your life. And here's the thing that we're trying to emphasize today, is that when we suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have this extra presence of God in our life. We're going to get to that in just a second. But when we suffer for sinful choices... That's completely different. And so if you're in jail for stealing your neighbor's tools, you are not suffering for the Lord. If you have no friends because you're always meddling in their business, sticking your nose where it doesn't belong, you're not suffering for the Lord. If you're scarred emotionally because you took a baby from the womb, you are not suffering for the Lord. And all of these are more suffering because of sinful choices. There's so many different ways we can go with this. I want to stress and claim and make sure everybody understands the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for all of these sinful choices. There is no sin beyond the blood of Jesus Christ that wipes away the stain of that sin. That, I want to make sure we emphasize that, okay? But what Peter is doing is he is differentiating between the suffering because of our faith and the suffering because of our sinful choices. you got enough suffering in your life. Don't add to it by making sinful choices. Keep away from that. The next weird thing, or the final weird thing I want to make sure, or interesting thing, I'm sorry, not weird. He says in verse 18, if the righteous one is scarcely saved. That's very interesting to me. And, and this is a requote of Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. 
it almost makes it sound like Christians are just barely saved. Like it's by the thinnest of margins that God is able to save us. But that's not what Peter is talking about. He's making a reference to how narrow the path of salvation is compared to how wide the path of destruction is. He's reminding us of what Jesus said when he said, Many are called, but few are chosen. The choice being, of course, relating to the response of the called one to salvation. Many are called, but few choose the way of salvation. And so what will the result be for those who have absolutely no mind or desire concerning about righteousness or salvation or the things of God? Listen, every human goes through suffering. Every human goes through trials. Whether saved or lost, every human will face judgment in this life and in eternity. Our only hope is to commit ourselves to the Lord, the Lord of all creation. So now what? Have I covered enough to give us hope in the midst of the fiery trial? How do we do that concerning this text? I want to remind you of the premise. The opportunity for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in the presence of God would never have materialized if they had feared and run away from the fiery, from the fiery trial. Uh, let's consider what this text talks about that gives us reasons for hope in the midst of our fiery trial, sufferings, and whatnot. And make no doubt, we suffer. Are we being beheaded because of our faith? No. But we certainly have faced ostracizing. We've certainly been marginalized because of our faith. We, we here recently have celebrated Supreme Court decisions that have gone the way of Christian bakeries or mourned the Supreme Court decisions against Christian businesses. I foresee that we will face more of those in the future. The suffering will only grow worse. They're suffering every time we say no to sin and temptation to sin because while our sin nature no longer reigns again, it remains. And so to say no, that's going to bring some kind of suffering. So how do we find uh, hope in this suffering? How do we find hope in the light of what we go through? Let me give you three real quickly. Understand that when we suffer for Christ, we are joined to Christ. Peter states, when we suffer for His sake, we partake in Christ's sufferings. In other words, when we suffer for, for Christ's sake, when we suffer for the name of God, no matter what that suffering looks like, we take part in what Christ went through. We are joined with Christ. Literally, we are joining with what Christ experienced. Whether we are put down or suffer verbally, or physically for the name of Christ, we take part in what Christ went through. Now, why is that special? Why does that give you hope? Well, honestly, in our flesh, we will never understand this. In our flesh, we will never really grasp hope from that concept. It is only when the Holy Spirit is able to move in us to understand what that truly means that we'll be able to grasp hope. All I can do, do though, is, is point us to Scripture that gives us an idea of this concept. There's, there's a lot of scriptures that we could point to. One I have in mind is in Acts chapter 5. And some apostles have been in, imprisoned because they are preaching the name of Jesus Christ and some angels come in the middle of the night and free them from prison. So what do they do? Do they run for their life? No, they go right back to the temple and they continue to preach for Jesus Christ. And the religious leaders come and pick them up and they say, didn't we tell you not to do that? And Peter says, we have to obey God rather than man. 
And then, long story short, let me sum up a lot of scripture with just a couple of phrases here. Basically, the religious leaders beat them and tell them, don't preach about them anymore, and set them free. And then the story concludes with this, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They, the apostles, departed, rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His, that is, Jesus Christ's name. That makes no sense. Why would I rejoice? Because I get to suffer for Jesus. It's because they realized they had taken part in what Jesus had experienced too. And they saw that it wasn't something they deserved, but it was something that they were counted worthy to do. Perhaps they were thinking about what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, chapter, 10, or chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, when Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's one thing to partake of the body and blood of Christ through the Last Supper or through the Lord's Supper. But man, it is truly special when we partake of Jesus Christ through suffering for His name and for His glory. And what the Bible tells us is, you have joined with Christ in that moment. Rejoice. Take joy. Be glad in those sufferings. Number two, understand that when we suffer for Christ, God's presence rests upon you. Again, in our human minds, in our human flesh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and perhaps it doesn't give you a lot of hope. But in the truth of Scripture and in, through the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives, certainly we could see and grasp how this gives you hope. God's presence rests upon you when you suffer for His name. I think about Acts chapter 7. Stephen being stoned to death because he was proclaiming the name of Jesus and he was preaching at the religious leaders. And the gospel, and he's proclaiming his gospel message. And the Bible says that as he was dying, his face shone like the face of an angel. Glorified. Glorified. And get this. Men are driving stones into the body of Stephen, putting him to death, and his face is being glorified. That's the hand of God resting upon Stephen. Thinking about throughout church history, men and women being put to death for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the truth. And they're always, in their testimonies, in the bio biographies of these, of these moments, there's always this testimony of them having a sense of peace and calm as they face their persecution. How is this possible? Unless, unless God has come and rested upon them unless the glory of God is upon them. Peter asserts this hope for all of us, that we might face suffering for the name of Jesus. This not only applies to our story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but you as well. Every instance of suffering that you might endure, both spiritual and physical, whether it's the spiritual suffering you face because you say no to sin and temptation, or whether it's a physical uh, uh, suffering you face because you're being ostracized for your faith in Jesus Christ, God's presence rests upon you in the fiery trial. But if you fear and you run away from that fiery trial, you'll not experience that presence. You'll not experience the glory of God being upon you. 
Number three, understand that when we suffer for Christ, God is glorified. This absolutely makes no sense to me. Unless by the Holy Spirit we come to a place of understanding. This is the complete paradox of what the world teaches. The world will, will want you to believe that the more popular you become, the more accepted you become, the better things are. You know, in youth ministry, I dealt with some youth ministers that would often say, if I could just get the captain of the football team saved, man, God would really be glorified by that. That's the mindset of the world. But what Peter is saying, no, no, no. When you suffer for the name of Jesus Christ, that's when God is truly glorified. Does that make sense? Well, he mentions it a couple of times in the scripture. Actually, the glory of God is mentioned throughout the scripture, but specifically looking at verse 14. He mentions that when we are reviled for His name, while those who are reviling His name are blaspheming God, they are cursing the name of God, we are glorifying God. See, what God does is He takes what the world wants to do and just puts it on its head. And He says, what you meant to defame me, I will use to glorify me. Also, he, does, he, says, he mentions again in verse 16, Peter affirms that when we suffer for Jesus, we are not to be ashamed, but instead understand we bring glory to the name of Jesus. Think about how opposite that sounds to the world we live in. God doesn't need our popularity. God doesn't need our acceptance in the world. What brings God the greatest glory is when we take a stand for the truth of the gospel and we suffer for it. That's how God is glorified. So we need to commit ourselves to God and the things of God. I wonder, do these reasons for hope give you hope in the midst of your suffering? Can you face the trials that might come your way and say, I know, I know, God, you are resting your presence upon me right now because of what I'm going through. I, I know and I have a hope that what I am experiencing brings me closer to God. But what if he does not decide to act in a way that makes your life better? You see, if God decides to rescue us, if he decides to heal us from a sickness, if he decides to turn a path from its storm to another direction, if he causes a lost person who is persecuting us to get saved and become our friend, then we respond with thankfulness and say in our hearts, that's why I hope in the Lord. But what if he decides not to act in this way? What if he lets the sickness pervade unto death? What if he allows the person to continue to persecute us? What if he allows the storm to stay its path and to wipe us out in destruction? Do we lose our hope because of this? Is our hope injured in that moment? As you ponder those questions, as you ponder what your hope is truly based upon, I want you to consider again the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they were seen out in the crowd, and King Nebi brought him up, brought them up on the platform, and basically gave them an ultimatum: bow or burn. Do you remember how they responded? Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, they said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods 
In other words, God is more than able to rescue me from this situation. He is more than able to save me from the fiery furnace. But even if he chooses not to do so, I will only worship him. And I will find my hope only in him. And that's truly committing ourselves to God, the God of creation, and saying, whatever may be, may be. Whatever you choose, God, I will still find my hope in you. There's a popular song out right now, and the words really fit this idea. It says, God, when you choose to leave the mountains unmovable, give me the strength to be able to sing, it is well with my soul. I know you're able, and I know you can, save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. I know the sorrow, and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word. But even if you don't, my hope is in you alone. That's faith. Faith doesn't make sense. Faith in an unseen God who promises us we will face suffering as a result of taking a stand for His name and for the truth of the gospel. That makes no sense. But neither does it make sense that a holy and faithful God would send His only begotten Son to a faithless and unholy people so that we might be reconciled to Him, that we might be forgiven have everlasting life. You see, our response to Him doesn't make sense to us in our flesh because His response to us doesn't make sense to us in our flesh. And that's why we have to have faith in these things. I don't deserve the Son of God dying for me. None of us do. But deserves got nothing to do with it. Because He is a loving and faithful God. That should be enough for us to find hope in, no matter what suffering we go through. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Bow your heads and close your eyes. We thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for your scripture. And Father, I pray for those that have never surrendered to you as Lord and Savior. Lord, they're trying to find hope by any number of ways. Ways that the world have devised. Ways that they've accepted as truth. That just, they're just not truth. Father, I pray that they would find hope and the only source of hope, you, Jesus Christ, and that they would surrender this morning to you as Lord and Savior. Father, I also pray for the Christian that perhaps continues to turn and run away from the suffering, from the fiery trials. Lord, that they would see what they're missing out on, and that is a greater presence of you. That is your hand resting upon them. That is being able to glorify you in those moments of trial. Father, that we would stop running. Father, we would accept our calling. And we would turn to you and have faith and commit ourselves to you and say, whatever may be, let it be. Father, I pray for your hand on this this morning, that we would respond however you are leading us. And it's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?